Good morning, everyone. I appreciate that song, and I appreciate um, the time yesterday at the prayer breakfast. And as I, as I mentioned there, uh, that was very encouraging to me on a different note in the fact that many of the conversations which were had there and the kind of the theme or prayers offered up and, and comments made in, in the sermon by Paul Washer, much of that, at least in my mind, connects to what I have prepared today in the sermon. And we have a heavy text before us, but I was, I was, I felt the, the sorrow that's in the passage, but at the end, I was left with great motivation, and, and I hope that that same, is the same for you today. Uh, we are returning to our study in the book of Micah. Uh, we are in chapter 7 now. We've been going through uh, this book in the Old Testament for two years now. I went and looked back, and, and uh, it was first began last February, or February of 21, I believe. And so two years later, here we're at the final chapter. And um, last time we looked at the conclusion of chapter 6, and if in the, the theme of the book, the judicial theme, that was the trial of the nation of Judah. Well, here at, at 7, now, Judah's trial is complete. Uh, her, sentencing, her sentencing is over, and, and Micah, who served, in a sense, as the district attorney, is just, he is completely exhausted at this point. He's demoralized, and, he, and he's scared, honestly. There's this, this unknown prophet from the little podunk town that served as God's district attorney, um, he courageously stood against his own nation, even against his own family, in order to speak very hard truths to them, uh, truths of God. And he just won the case of a lifetime. But in these opening words here that we find in chapter 7, these opening words of this last chapter of his memoirs, we might say, there isn't much rejoicing going on. In fact, there is a great amount of sorrow and much anguish which he's expressing in, in verbal form. And, and Micah here, he provides for us another contrast and comparison. He, he's a master wordsmith here. And he is, you can tell from his words that he is a student of the Scripture. And he is drawing back in Israel's history. He's drawing back from these other previous prophets and, and kings and accounts. And, and he, he provides for us another comparison contrast to help us understand what's going on. Not only in the nation at large, but in his own heart. There is this contrast between, between fruit and thorns which we're going to see. He, um, he juxtaposes here godliness and fruit with wickedness and briars. And this is an agreement with other biblical accounts that join these two, two analogies. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and we have this <clears throat> right in the beginning of the Scripture because... Immediately after the fall, God said that thorns and thistles would come because of a cursed ground, because of wickedness. And indeed, the, the absence or the lack of fruit is a sign of the presence of the curse. And that validates God's Word. But initially we must remember that God said, be fruitful and multiply. So there's that contrast. And that's a blessing. And these themes, they are presented throughout the Scriptures. But, but Micah here, in describing his feelings, in describing his, his environment, 
He tells of a situation that, that really appears hopeless. Essentially, he is describing a situation, an environment that foretells something yet to come. His is a description of the last generation, if you will. And so he offers here a final warning and instruction. Let's just read these verses here. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Now their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Well, here in verse 1, Micah attempts to describe his feelings. He says, woe is me. And then he offers this description. I am like. His, his initial flaunt, thought, they, they, it flows onto the paper as one of, of really just total rejection of, of condemnation, really. Woe is me. And you immediately think of Isaiah here in the throne room. Well, that seems really harsh. It seems really like a greatly dramatic statement here. Woe is me. I mean, this is the local pastor. And, and it's the local pastor, it's the local attorney that just won an enormous case. His message was validated by God. And he says, woe. But... Regardless, in order to help his people understand his heart, Micah, he offers a simile. He gives a a comparison here. I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. He's been legally employed, if you will. He's, He's been given a task. He's been sent out into the orchard, into the vineyard, into the field in order to bring home harvest. To bring home food. He's preparing for the winter. He is providing for those who depend upon Him. He's motivated. He's excited for the job. He's thankful for it. He's looking forward to the perks that it offers. He's hungry. And and, and when you get hungry, what happens? Your mouth salivates. He's anticipating the pleasure of eating ripe produce, of fruit, the natural sweetness of it. But much to his sorrow here, there's no apples to pick. There's no grapes to gather. No figs to pluck. Now, to be sure, there are trees out there. There's vines out there. There's bushes there. But there's only leaves. He goes out expecting a harvest, but there's nothing. It's as if he's entered the work too late. Mike has been given a job to do, but he's unable to do it. He can't do his job. He's unable to receive any rewards, any benefits, any payment. He has a thankless position. Now think about this for just a minute. Whatever your vocation is, just what is your vocation? What's your job? Whatever it is, 
Consider for the moment that for the last year, for the last five years, for the last ten years, whatever, you have prepared for this. You've trained for this. You've apprenticed for this. And now the time finally arrives that you get to go out, you get to launch and practice your trade. But you can't. For whatever reason, you're unable to do that for which you have prepared and trained and learned from, set your heart for. The environment, the economy, doesn't matter. The situation has changed to such an extent that your skill set's no longer needed. It's no longer desired. It's not even considered valuable. Or maybe, maybe it is that you have a, a fairly straightforward, just a day laborer kind of job. It doesn't take a lot of training, but it takes sweat. It takes effort. And you go out to work because your family needs food. And if you don't work, they don't eat. Either way, what an impotent, what a dejected, what a deflated feeling for this man to go to work and you can't even work. It's as if a curse has been placed upon his head instead of a blessing. Woe is me. What a feeling of, of panic or, or of wasted time, of wasted effort. What a just a horrible feeling that's upon him. But it gets worse. Micah's position and what he has to offer isn't just, it isn't just outdated. Okay, he hasn't just progressed, the, the technology hasn't just progressed so long that it's, that it's made his, his trade pointless. It's not just outdated. It's not just badly timed. No, this is a lonely job. He's the only one in town. The godly person has perished from the land, it says. So it's thankless and it's a very lonely position. What Micah is saying is that not only can he not expect to receive any type of compensation for his work, no benefits, no physical pleasure, no fulfillment, but no one even sees the need for his services. He's the only provider in town and nobody cares. He has a critical service to provide Nobody cares. Micah cares about doing his job. And you know what? That's a godly desire. To care about doing your job and doing it well, doing it efficiently, doing it to the best of your ability. Micah cares. And there is within each one of us, or there ought to be, a certain desire for glory and honor. Now, when approached through correctly, this actually is a godly desire. But, if that statement evokes too strong of a reaction from you, then think of it in these terms. There is within each one of us a desire for meaning and for purpose and for productivity. But because of the curse, our labor is severely hampered. Imagine what we could get done what we could accomplish without the curse. If you didn't have to sweat all day long for your daily bread, what progress could be made? If there was no pain in childbearing, if there was no friction in child rearing, imagine what we could accomplish. But because of the curse, it is no longer comfortable. It is no longer joyful and peaceful. In fact, some vocations even call for people to go to war. That's an occupation. But whenever we go into the workforce and and we, we leave behind our air conditioners, when we endure harsh criticism from clients, when when we are part of an, an undercover operation to bust up a crime ring then we are being like our Master. Because He left a place of comfort. 
He left a place of joy and of worship and of peace. And what did He do? He came to a place full of discomfort, of, of selfishness, of division, of conflict even. But it was not a futile attempt. It had purpose. Christ came to a curse-filled land to do a job, and it was not futile. He has received and will continue to receive glory and honor. Now, there's something that we need to remember about the book of Micah here. Um, And that is, you know, we've talked about this before, that this is a historical record. It's a factual account of something that actually occurred. He gives in the beginning during the days of these kings. So it sets for us in a time frame. And and then there's these these, um, explanations, these descriptions of what occurred and how people were thinking and feeling and acting. It's a factual record. But listen, this book is also a book that's inside of a greater book that has a larger record of history. And within the pages of this, this larger body of works... Well, there's other similar accounts to men like Micah. Take, for instance, these three men, Noah, Lot, and Elijah. Each of these men, they lived in a time or in a place in which they had a task to perform and in which they were discredited and seemingly alone. Noah's day, the environment is described as this. The intentions of man's heart was only evil Continually. What a wicked statement. And it says, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. What did Micah say? The godly person has perished. But of Noah, it's written, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God of Lot and his fellow citizens, the Apostle Peter writes this, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And Elijah, we know the many accounts that we have in the Scripture of Elijah will the, the account especially with the prophets of Baal. He's surrounded by 450 prophets, idolatrous people, false prophets. He's personally hunted down by the king. The queen specifically hates him and wants to destroy him and in all of the other prophets of God. The situation seems so dire to Elijah that he finally said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. Each one of these is a very powerful example that corresponds to Micah's experience. But in my mind, the ultimate parallel in the scripture... The ultimate account is found in the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel accounts, they record for us an event that occurred immediately after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in which Jesus goes to Jerusalem expecting to find true worship, true disciples. But instead, what does He find? Legalized theft, extortion, religious hypocrisy. And for a second time, it says he's consumed with zeal for his father's house. And so he topples over the the tables of his money changers and he drives out the cattle. By the way, this was premeditated. He made a whip of cords. He went the day before as a reconnaissance mission and came back. And as a parable, as a living parable of of Jesus' expectation of what ought to be but is absent... Jesus Christ, a hungry Jesus Christ, curses a fig tree and it withers because it had no fruit on it. It was barren. 
What do these accounts have in common? Perversion. Perversion is what these accounts have in common. In Noah's day, in Lot's day, it is one of gross sexual perversion. And that's the final manifestation of concentrated evil. This is the final destination of selfishness and greed. Self-destruction. What's Romans 1 say? Something about receiving in themselves the due penalty. Self-destruction. The environment surrounding Christ and Elijah is one of abundant spiritual perversion. This is the final manifestation of depraved thinking. Spiritual self-destruction, if you will. One has to do with messed up intimate human relations. And the other has to do with messed up human to God relations. Why are there these similar multiple accounts in the Scripture? Why does it describe this type of environment for us in different ways and at different times? I think there's several reasons. First, this is a historical book. And all of these accounts are particularly important historically. Second, in order for future generations to understand the justice of God, how it can actually be okay that Jesus goes into a place of worship with violence in order to cleanse it, in order to understand the justice of God, they've got to comprehend the depravity of man. Third, because mankind is so depraved that whenever restraints are removed, sin becomes way more manifest, doesn't it? It is more open. It is more fully shown to be what it is. And this manifestation, it leads to hatred. It leads to persecution against anyone or anything that opposes their ideology of against anyone who would call out sin. And this leads to further scarcity of righteous men, further scarcity of godliness and of righteous living, and it increases the boldness of the evildoers. Fourth, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So the picture is redrawn throughout the pages of history with different faces, in different places, in different clothing, at different times, with different backgrounds, so that we can recognize it, so that we're given in the picture again and again and again and understand. Fifth, why? Because of all of the above, there is no one within humanity whom we can fully trust, not even ourselves. Why? The heart's deceitful. Well, this leads us to another question. If all of these things are true, if mankind is so depraved and so wicked, and it says he's, he's lying in wait in, for bloodshed, he's hunting his fellow man's, both hands are doing evil well, if that's the case, how then has man not brought about his own extinction? I mean, there, there's a lot of that talk and been a lot of that talk over the years that man's about to annihilate himself. We're about to destroy the planet completely and the entire race is going to be erased. How has man not brought about his own extinction? Well, if you'll notice that in each one of these cases, each one of these scriptures that's been referenced or mentioned, the answer is the same. God rescues humanity. Genesis 6, what happened? Well, God destroyed the entire world, but rescued eight people. He rescued four couples. And in so doing, what did He do? He kept alive His promise about the seed of the woman. What happened in Genesis 18? God rained down fire and brimstone and completely obliterated two entire cities. But He saved Lot and two of His daughters. In fact, Peter said explicitly, he rescued righteous Lot. 
Well, in saving Lot and in saving his daughters, God preserved his plan for messianic lineage. Moab. Who was a Moabitess? Ruth. In 1 Kings 19, God told Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's a, it's a minor rebuke here to Elijah. But, but here God preserves not only a, a Elijah himself, not just a single prophet, but an entire cross-section of his people. And he does it from this murderous, idolatrous, evil woman. And he makes a point, though, of specifically rescuing Elijah, not necessarily from her, although that's true, but he rescues Elijah specifically from himself, from depression. He pulls him out of unceasing sorrow and from lying to himself. You see, God saved him from starvation even. He sent ravens there to bring food and water by the brook. And then He sent him to the widow. God saved him from starvation and from martyrdom and thereby preserving His plan for not only Elijah and his prophet, but for his entire people. In, in the accounts in the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, Jesus preserved the integrity of worship. And He rescued Israel from her dead religion, from her lifeless idols. But I think there's a sixth reason why we have these various scriptural accounts about the same type of environment. Because there's a time yet future in which this environment's going to return. And it's going to return on a worldwide scale. And I want you to consider these scriptures here. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Matthew 24. Luke 17 says this, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And then I take this as well. Matthew, Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, for many of you, the language that we find here in verses 5 and specifically 6 of Micah 7, it's familiar. And I, and I don't mean in reference to the family, although that is obvious. I mean in that it's familiar and that we recognize it. We, we've heard this before. And when we read this verse here about family relations and, and the, the conflict and the strife in between them, it's like we, a little flag pops up and it begins to wave. And, and we, we focus in on this movement. And, and we begin to study the pattern with which the, the flag waves. And we are reminded that, that this verse was quoted by Jesus. Not just once, but a few times. Matthew 10 is probably the most recognizable. Uh, then there's Mark 13, which we're going to read later. Uh, and then there's Luke 12 and Luke 21 in which Jesus quotes from this or references this particular verse. And each one of these New Testament passages and each one of these Old Testament types and parallels which we've looked at with Elijah and Noah and Lot, they all have an eschatological element to it. That is, there's a final fulfillment that will occur at the time of the end. That, that's built into each one of these. Well, Micah, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit here, he, he sees the coming destruction and he weeps. He sorrows over it. And it's just like Jesus wept when He looked at Jerusalem 
And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And, and I love, I actually love that word visitation here, the connotation in which it, it gives both of visiting but as judgment. And when the King James uses visitation in verse 4, your visitation will come. It's in reference, it has the, the feeling of an accounting it's almost financial in sense. There's numbers, there's, there's officers, there's uh, a reckoning, there's oversight, there's orderings, there's custody, there's an account. There's a reckoning. Well, listen. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he didn't come to declare war. That happened in Genesis 3. He didn't come to end the war. That's going to occur in Revelation at the end of time. When Jesus came on His first deployment, He came to intensify the war. And I think we missed that. How did He do this? Why did He do this? Jesus came to plant and to ignite the most powerful weapon in the universe. And actually, Jesus said this very explicitly. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. The gospel. Jesus' virgin birth, His sinless life, His atoning death, His law-fulfilling burial, and His victorious resurrection was a one-time, non-repeatable explosion, the effects of which are felt throughout history. The detonation was so great that it had ramifications, not just in those moments, but in the past and in the future. And every now, every, even now, the wind is carrying the sparks where it will. It is blowing the remnants of this explosion where it will. And as these embers land on dry papers here, or dried leaves, or twigs, or pine needles, or timbers, the flame reignites, furthering this devastation. Sometimes it's a single page. Sometimes it's an entire prairie fire or a forest fire. And as we look at the pages of history, church history, we recognize this, that sometimes it's difficult to find a believer in church history, you look and you say, where's the church? Where are the true Christians? And in other times, as you're studying and as you're thinking about the flame of God, it's as if everybody is a reformer or a missionary or a preacher or an evangelist. But the scene in which Micah describes for us here is one of those times in which the godly person has perished from the land. It's like you're looking in church history and you're like, there's nobody here. There's none faithful. Like Elijah, he can't see a way out. Like Noah, none paid attention to the warnings. Like Lot, he's surrounded by immorality and murderous intent. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other. Both hands do evil well. 
Well, if we look closely at this passage, we're going to see a natural progression. A progression from uh, the loss of truth and the inability to know truth to societal collapse. And let your eyes just kind of go back and forth over these first six verses. Think about what we've already talked about in this book and consider this and consider what you, you know from the rest of the Scriptures. That as godly people perish, godliness itself diminishes. The effects, sub-effects of godliness decrease. And truth begins to be lost. As godliness diminishes, and as truth is lost, so does the earth's productivity and richness. Let me just give, stop right for a quick and give a quick illustration. Because a godly farmer cares about the quality of his soil. He actually cares about the quality of his, of his crops. And when, when that doesn't happen... When men, when farmers fail to care about the quality of their product and their soil and their land, guess what? The curse has a more suitable place in which to grow thorns and thistles. Well, as productivity decreases, as quality wanes, desperation begins to grow. As desperation grows so does the murder rate. As murders skyrocket, the judicial and the executive leadership, they lose the ability now to discern and enforce justice. They're losing control, if you will. And subsequently, they themselves resort to selfishness and the ignoring of duty. In a place where discernment and justice are gone, and, and in its place now reigns uh, ignorant selfishness, there can be no meaningful human relationships because everyone is subject to suspicion. When everyone is a potential enemy of the state, uniformity and surveillance becomes widespread. As individual privacy disappears, oppression and ruthlessness fills the vacuum. The guillotine rules. There's anarchy. It is a logical progression. And we see it in some of these verses here. Well, it is in and it is this precise context. One of lost truth, lost relationship, of abused authority, and of unlawful executions of which Micah issues his warning here. And as we've already seen, Christ places Micah's warning in the same context. It's here in which Jesus gives His followers a dire warning. He gives them some direct commands and He gives them some dedicated promises. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 13. We will return to Micah, but turn with me to Mark 13 and we're going to read where Jesus quotes this. We're going to begin in verse 9, reading through verse 13, and it's written, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Listen, in this type of environment, 
there's only two responses to the preaching of the gospel. Either the messenger is ostracized and beaten, or he's imprisoned or killed so that they shut him up, or the message penetrates that which is impenetrable, and the Spirit of God fans the flame into a raging fire. Or actually, I think there's a third option, and that is both. What was that statement? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So, what exactly is verses, or verses 5 and 6 of Micah teaching us? Is it teaching us that the reason for societal collapse is the disintegration of the family? Is it teaching us that the family truly is the building block of society? Well, yes, it is. It truly is. And we know this instinctively. Uh, We know this because it's inherent within the creation order. We know this because of the law of subsidiarity, which says that the most stable unit is the smallest unit. But there is something more basic There is something more fundamental, more foundational than even the family. And these verses here are teaching us that we cannot, that we must not look to the family as the solution to to our greatest problem. The family is not the answer to society's greatest problem. A stable family is the result of the solution. A stable family is the result of grounded individuals in relationship. And individuals are only properly grounded by the energization of the Holy Spirit. Do you have an unstable family? Then seek the Lord and start with yourself. Be of good cheer. He says, don't be afraid. He says, be anxious for nothing. The Spirit of God brings life out of non-life. He brings order into disorder. He inserts zeal and passion and drive into that which was apathetic and complacent. He speaks truth into deceived and deceptive hearts. When anyone attempts to circumvent the work of the Spirit or exchange Him for something, uh, for something else or for relationship, even as, something, even as something as critical as the family, when anyone attempts to circumvent that or exchange Him What they get is a secret society. What they get is a cult. What you're left with is simply a program, an outward facade. You get a methodology. You get propaganda. What you have is a lifeless idol. And idols can be contained. So Micah ends his description of what he sees, both present and future, with a very grave warning. And it's the same warning that the Apostle John gave us. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. As I draw this to a conclusion, I want to share with you a story that my wife likes to tell. At a, uh, a youth Bible camp years ago, there was a, a group of campers one evening that's done like all of us have done. They sat around a campfire. They were singing, rejoicing. They were fellowshipping, having a good time, probably eating snacks. Well, the fire died down and they you know, all went to bed. Well, the next day, there was a young man walking to, towards, the, towards the boy's cabin, maybe 50 feet away. Uh, she doesn't remember. But um, as he's walking there, Suddenly, without any warning, a 
fully developed tree just burst into flames. Imagine the terror on that guy. Whoa! Out of nowhere. Well, unbeknownst to anyone, without any visible sign, no smoke was noted. Through the night, this fire had penetrated into the roots of this tree, went along it slowly, underground, until the exact mixture of oxygen, of fuel, combusted. And this fully grown tree just leapt into flame. It was engulfed. Well, have you ever felt alone? Have you felt discouraged? Just disheartened? Overwhelmed with the prevalence of sin? Your own sin? Maybe you're overwhelmed. You feel alone in your own, in your own environment. You, 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 you wrestle with your own failures. You're sorrowing over that which you see in your family or your friends. Listen, Micah weeps, not because he lost the case, but because he won. What happens when you are proven right in regards to sin and man's sinful nature? Does that really make you feel good? Does it make you feel good to know that man sins? I hope not. Doesn't it bring about a feeling of hopelessness at times and of impotence and of sorrow? Like, what's the point? Have you ever seen, have you ever experienced or lived in a family or a church that wasn't unified? That, that the environment was such that truth could not be spoken or tolerated? Isn't that just exhausting? You're walking on eggshells. Isn't that dangerous? What ought we to do in such a circumstance? Well, one, we need to first recognize this isn't about me. It's not about me. I may be in the situation. I may have even helped to cause the situation. I may be a victim of the circumstance of someone else in this situation. But it doesn't revolve around me. That's first. Second, we must do like Micah does in verse 7. And go ahead and look at verse 7. Because he, he turns his eyes upward towards God. I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Move your eyes from your belly button to the heavens. Straighten up. Okay, here's something physical you can actually do to the best of your ability. Try to fight back this tendency to, to couch over and to curve down. And stand up straight. What's it talk about? A crooked man or an upright man? Turn your eyes to the heavens. Look to God and stop looking at yourself. Meditate on the person of God like Elijah did when he was confronted with the tornado, with the earthquake, with the fire, and finally a whisper. Meditate on the person of God. And third, set yourself to the task in front of you. What did Micah do? After refocusing his gaze, and he reminded himself about God, look at verse 8. He engages the enemy. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. But he couldn't do that if he didn't remind himself about whom the situation was. If he, could, if he didn't remind himself about who his God was, he couldn't engage the enemy. Isaiah says this, The Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Ezekiel says this, or actually the Lord spoke to Ezekiel and said, 
Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their forehead. You hardhead, you ever tell your son that? You, as hard as their, like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. To set your face to the task in front of you. This is like a soldier who goes on a mission thinking or believing he is going to die. But he goes anyways. It doesn't matter. You're not the commander. You're simply the grunt who is called to advance to the enemy. You don't care about your life because the mission comes first. It's only when the mission comes first that then you can find the strength, be encouraged to climb out of the trench, wade through the water, jump out of the airplane, and go forward. Because you are a part of something larger than yourself. And God has called you to play your part. Your part is necessary no matter how small. It doesn't matter what your part is. You have a part to play. Some will die. Some will be wounded. Some will be captured. But some will survive. And in the living, and in the dying, and in the hospitals, and in the prisons, the message is spread The commander's intent is met and the fire is unleashed. There's a common phrase in the the Arabic language that's used to describe an engagement between opposing forces. Or really it's used any time that there is a description of a a weapon being shot. And that is, Utlach al-Nar. Like, what in the world? Simply translated, it means to unleash fire. Unleash fire. Let me ask you a question. June 6, 1944, Normandy Beach. What happened if the troops in the Higgins boats hadn't walked into the face of those entrenched machine guns? What would have happened if the night before the 82nd Airborne and the Jedburgh teams refused to jump behind the lines? Frankly, we don't know. Because they did. As a result, France, Europe, the Jewish people, and even the world, we might say, was rescued from a demonic scourge. And just like Micah, you and I have been providentially placed within such an environment, but one that is more insidious, more subversive than outward tanks and machine guns. It is more deadly. And at this point, I think it's applicable to quote from Mordecai when he says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Brothers and sisters, children of the king, What ought we to do? Never disregard or underestimate the Spirit of God. Never. It doesn't matter if you can't feel the wind blowing, if you can't see the embers burning. You're not God. You can't be everywhere and see everything. Let God be concerned with Where 
and when He wants to light a fire. Two, never attempt to defang the Word of God. Don't compromise on it. What does Scripture declare? He says, Is not my word like fire? Is it not a hammer that shatters the rock? Let it burn away the dross and crush your pride. His word will do its work. It will not return, return void. Don't make excuses for it. Just get out of the way. Let it do its work. And finally, I'm going to quote from Winston Churchill, never give up. Never give up. He said this at an address to, I think, his boys' college or something. Um, when he was a youth, he, I think he went here. But he said this, it's famous, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to the convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. I like that, apparently overwhelming. For there is more for us than who's against us. What's the answer? What is the godly response? Fifty years ago, Francis Schaeffer had this to say. He said, start personally and start in your homes. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, he said. And then he had this, this longer quote here, but, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, but focus in on purity and love. Okay? He says, to be really Bible-believing Christians, we need to practice simultaneously at each step of the way two biblical principles. One principle is that of the purity of the visible church. Scripture commands that we must do more than just talk about the purity of the visible church. We must actually practice it, even when it is costly. The second principle is of, of an observable love among all true Christians. I like what he says here. In the flesh, we can stress purity without love. Or we can stress love without purity. We cannot stress both simultaneously. To do so, we must look moment by moment to the work of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Without that, a stress on purity becomes hard, proud, legalistic. Some of us have experienced that. Likewise, without it, a stress on love becomes sheer compromise. And some of us have, ex have experienced that. Spirituality begins to have real meaning in our lives as we begin to exhibit simultaneously the holiness of God and the love of God. Without this simultaneous exhibition, our marvelous God and the Lord is not set forth. It's rather a caricature of Him that's shown, and He is dishonored. What do we do? Unleash fire. Trust in the Spirit of God, the work of the Lord Jesus. Believe His Word and don't quit. Keep fighting for His glory and for His honor. Let's pray. Gracious God, before You we come and what a hard passage, Lord, that we read and we we even see around us some of the realities of wickedness, of when godliness departs, when godly men decrease and wickedness prevails. Lord, we see around us hatred and bitterness and broken homes and broken judiciary, broken government. And it's painful to watch. 
it hurts. It hurts in our own hearts. It hurts in our own homes. It hurts in our churches. When we go to work, it hurts. But Lord, we, we, we praise You that You have not left us without Your Word. That You have not left us without example, without instruction. And so we ask, Lord, as the disciples asked, Lord, increase our faith. We say, Lord, light the fire. We say, revive us again. We say, Lord, thank You for surrounding us, for protecting us, for guarding us, for keeping us. That You have prayed for us that our faith may not fail. But when we do sin, You say, strengthen your brothers. Lord, we thank You for Your victory over sin and of death. And we look forward to this in its final glorious victory. Thank You, Lord, for the truth of the resurrection. For the, for the truth of adoption into Your family, Your perfect family. For the hope that peace will reign. Bless us, Lord, today. Bless us in the work You give us to do. And may we do it for Your honor and glory. We ask through Jesus. Amen.